much for coming to our iconic artist talk. My name is Violaine Huisman. I work in the Education and Humanities Department here at BAM. Please join me in welcoming Philip Glass and Nico Muley. Oh, sorry. All right. So, um, so we're going to do what we we do what we usually do, only we're doing it in front of a lot of people. Right. Exactly. So we're just going to sort of talk about things, and okay. um, and you'll you'll listen in, and um, if you start if if you start looking bored, we'll we'll move on to the next thing. I think it's. I'll take, I'll take my glasses off. I won't notice. <laughs> I think it's it's great to it's great that this is happening at BAM because I, I realized you know when, when I was growing up, BAM was one of the places closest to me right in, in Vermont or in Providence where I could see your work. And you've done so much here. You know, Nico, that's how it felt to me when I was growing up. <laughs> that was the only place. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's true. Uh, uh, it was always the place where a new work could be done. It was the only place that, of, uh, let's say, uh, a full-size theatrical work could be done or would be done. I mean, it could be done all over the place, but the place that it would be done would be here. And you, you were working here as early as the, the 80s, right? It was Oh, it was in the 70s. I wonder, so I think that we, have, we have some archival footage, and one, one thing that I, I'm sort of obsessed with is that archival footage, no matter what year it's from, always looks equally terrible. Um, so there's, we, we have some, some footage from you know, eight months ago that looks like it was taken in 1976, and we have footage from 76 that looks precisely as I've described. So I wonder if maybe we should, we should uh, investigate the first video just as a, as a launching point for talking about the past. Fine. I'll just scoot that little mouse hand down, but slow, like Robert Wilson style. Yeah, really slow. No, no, no too fast. About... Was all that? <laughs> well, that was uh, hydrogen jukebox. The last one was hydrogen jukebox. We began with a piece that actually was the first piece uh, that began the next wave festival. That was the photographer. Uh, was that in '81? Perhaps. Does anyone remember? '81, '83. '81. It had '83. <laughs> uh, it had actually had a premiere in Europe in '81. That's the secret trick, is you get it out of the way instead of the Netherlands, and then... Yeah, well, it's a good place. That's called an opening out of town, Nico. Opening out of town, way exactly. Of, <laughs> call it way out of town. Exactly, in uh, old York. Um, uh, now, for the photographer... David, David Gordon worked on that one right. uh, as the designer. Uh, one, uh, uh, he did the, the dance parts of, of, uh, of uh, the photographer, and Joanne Akalatis was the director. So, something that I was we were talking about before up, up the stairs was you would have been in the pit for the photographer. That would have been you playing the organ, right? Or one of the it, organs. It was, in fact, me in the pit. In point of fact. <laughs> so I think something that's, that's important to, to understand about a lot of Philip's early work is that it, it was built on um, friends and family, in a sense. Well, it was a... 
I had a performing ensemble, and we uh, we stayed together. We're still together. Uh, it's uh, uh, about there are some of the original members playing in, in Einstein right now. Michael Reisman has been with us in '73 or so before. He's a music director. Uh, Lisa Bialava, who has been helping with the choral music and herself is a quite an accomplished composer, uh, she has. It's been quite a while now. You know, I forget. But when I find out it's been 15 or 20 years, I'm a little surprised because it just seems like it wasn't quite that long, but it is that long. It's uh, the photographer is, is a work that was. It was an un. There was nothing extra added to the Philip Glass Ensemble, right? It was just, it was the keyboards, the winds, and the voice. That's right. And, and uh, I stuck with the ensemble for a long time. Uh, uh, though I, I, I had the usual conservatory training where I, uh, I was not willing to write any music for symphony orchestras or operas for that matter and not have them performed. Uh, and I didn't want to go through the process of sending music away and being told that, no, they weren't going to do it. That never happened. Uh, I just uh, waited until someone asked. I, it, it's not that I waited. I started working with an ensemble, and that ensemble became very proficient with the music. And um, we, with that, I was able to work in dance, in theater, in opera, for that matter, as with Einstein, uh, uh, and just as concert pieces, so that it became, uh, by the time we, we got around, it was really the Europeans first that commissioned some of the big pieces that were... Well, no, that's not completely true, because... Agnato was also commissioned by the uh, uh, the Houston Grand Opera and the ENO. But uh, I, I, the the curious thing is, and this is a, a real oddity, I became uh, I, I, be, I people became interested in orchestra music when I began writing for operas that used orchestras. Right. It's and and the the terrific thing about that is, is that as uh, most young composers know, if you finally get someone to play your orchestra piece. You may, and let's say the piece is twenty minutes long, you'll get twenty minutes of rehearsal. Exactly, you'll get maybe eighteen minutes of rehearsal if you're lucky. <laughs> right. In other, in other words, you don't really get a rehearsal. Uh, and and we live in this. Uh, uh, it's a very confusing situation because we have premieres of pieces which, in fact, aren't really premieres at all. Uh, they're really readings. And and then if, if a piece catches on and we hear it later on, like that's happened with. Uh, John, some of John Adams' pieces get done quite a bit now, uh, and uh, uh, they start sounding really good when people learn how to play. Right, them. like fifteen years yeah. later. No, exactly. Yeah. It's. I mean, this is this is he's, he's this exactly is the, right. This is exactly the problem, and I wasn't willing to do that. But now with opera houses, when you uh, do, if you write a, a piece for with a regular opera house, you have a week of rehearsals, a whole week and with the orchestra. Yeah, with the orchestra. And, that, and you even have four or five rehearsals without anybody with the orchestra. So you can wander into the pit and pick out what, uh, what sticks you want the percussionist to play. You can talk, you can go over the, 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 the mutes that the trumpets are using. You get to correct mistakes in the scores that you never would have gotten that chance to do. Uh, if, if you read a piece of orchestra music, essentially... You, I mean, I just this happened to me as recently as two weeks ago. I mean, you you, you turn up at the first <laughs> rehearsal, and they kind of bash through it, and you know, it, as as is the way of these things, you sort of chase out some really obvious errors. But there's all that level of detail. Well, and then there's the other thing too. Uh, this, I'm sure, if it hasn't happened to you, will or already is happening. With someone like Satyagraha, we premiered it in uh, the Netherlands in the Netherlands Opera. I think we were rehearsing in 83 or maybe something like that, 82 or 83. And um, it's mostly a string piece uh, with, with winds. And uh, at the, uh, the first rehearsals were so atrocious that the conductor, Dennis Davis, finally stopped and said, look, anyone who really doesn't want to play, with the, play in this piece, you're excused, you can get up and leave. <laughs> Half of them left. <laughs> Suddenly, the piece began to sound much better. Right. This is—I mean—this is a wonderful thing that you that you you obviously learned very quickly, which is that you know having a hundred people playing your music sounds amazing, but having two people who really love your music playing it <laughs> sounds much better than that. And and you can get in, in music school, as you know, you get addicted to this idea that you know one day I, when I'm a when I'm a big girl, like I will get calls from symphony orchestras and they will want my music. But actually, as it turns out, that's that's kind of. That, that's, that stuff puts years on your life well, when, you, when you actually get it. It's stressful. I, I don't want to discourage you at all. However, <laughs> uh, 
when I got into my 60s and 70s, orchestras started liking me a lot better. Right. You've you got a ways to yeah, go. Exactly. But, <laughs> but as I've said, that you don't have to wait as long as I did because you're much quicker than me, as we all know. And uh, what took me 30 years, I expect you'll be able to do in 10 or 12. I'll, I'll try my best. Is this... but, 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 but in fact, uh, uh, what happens now when I go, when, uh, when I play, uh, if I'm playing with the LA Philharmonic, with with the PG Ensemble, PG Ensemble, which we've been doing with, like doing kind of Scassi Lab with an orchestra. And Necrocancy with the cello. People yeah. actually come up and talk to me. And they, first of all, uh, I'm uh, probably twice as old as almost most of the orchestra. Uh, there are people in their 30s. And there are some older players, but there are a lot of young players in the orchestras now. That's true in Cincinnati. And in any place I go, that'll be true. And what happens is that uh, they grew up, the music was already there when they were born. So it wasn't... Uh, I'm not perceived as some kind of a lunatic right. <laughs> who figured out some crazy way of writing music. It was always there. I was a lunatic who was always there, and and they and they had and they got used to it without even knowing that they were getting. And, used to and it. now there's a generation of people even younger than younger than I am, people in their twenties, you know, who who grew up with the Kronos recordings of your string quartets, right. for instance, and for whom your string quartets are are not just this weird thing that they bought on some nun such CD in the classical, but yeah. it's actually rep. It's something. It's like, oh yeah, we should do class. Start, we should do class five. So uh, it is. Uh, it's of course part a question of time. But at the time, what we're talking about, what happened in the real world was that uh, I stuck with the ensemble for a long time because with the ensemble I had uh, very good players who were committed to. We actually rehearsed. Uh, we rehearsed the music and we played. And, and since we were doing uh, tour, we did regular touring. So many like a piece like. This photographer that we just heard a little bit of, we play it every year, and 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 the piece is now 30 years old. I mean, we probably played the piece 150 times. I mean, if I counted it up, it would be a it would be a number like that. Now here, but here's a question about the photographer: Who has anyone else played it? Uh, yes, they, they, it's now. Now that's a different matter. What happens is uh, there's a group in in Rome called Alter Ego, and they uh, about four or five years ago. Uh, I got a call from the head of the, this outfit, and they asked if they could play the early pieces of mine. And I said, well, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> and I really tried it. He said, no, we, we want to play them. We want to have them. I said, well, he said, do, are there scores? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, there's scores. And I said, don't you, can't you, and I actually said to him, can't you find something better to do? <laughs> and he said, no, no, we want to do this. <laughs> I said, okay, okay. So finally, I, I, I kind of realized, I said, okay, we sent them the music, and they began playing it. And then they said, aren't you going to come and hear it? <laughs> and I, I didn't, I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I, said, I happened to be in Italy about that time, and so they arranged a, a later, they arranged a, a concert so I could hear them play, and I did go. Now, here's the thing. These are pieces like, no one's heard these pieces in a long time. People, 800 lines they're doing, eight, right? Right, 600, a music in the shape of a square, yeah. and all this kind of... What's that thing for two, ba- two bass clarinets? All that stuff is happening, right? Yeah, like, they were playing. And, and, they, and I listened to it, and I was astonished. And, and after they said, well, how did we do? And I said, well, truthfully, you played it better than we did. <laughs> and they said, what? No, they thought I was kidding. I said, no, 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 you have to understand. When I wrote that music, we didn't know how to play it. The, the, and, and this is something that any composer will, will have, that there's a performance practice that goes with a music. And uh, if you think about it carefully, you can see that for a piece, of, piece for a music to be truly new, there has to be a new way to play it. If you can play a piece of music in the same way that you played Chopin or Beethoven, it wouldn't be very new. So that the performance practice grows up with the music. What usually happens is... Uh, uh, some uh, some young man or woman writes a piece, they get an item ready piece, no one knows how to play it, and they learn how to play it. And that's what happened with the ensemble. Right. Uh, by the time we got to doing Einstein in 76, we had actually learned how to play the music. And the piece that made it possible for us was a very long, complicated piece called um, Music in Four Parts. So it began in 71 and finished in 74, and every... Two or three months, I would add a part to it. I finished Music in Twelve Parts. For those of you who don't know it, is this is this epic kind of thing of it, there's no fixed length, but it's long and it's in twelve parts. And there's it's for the Philip Glass Ensemble, and it's you have three woodwinds and three keyboards and a singer. And what it does is it moves from this kind of this kind of ecstatic drone music through every possible permutation of 
these little repetitive patterns, and so you get you get sections of intense chromaticism, you get sections of intense diatonic, like you know uh, things. I, yeah, I thought of it really and then there's a twelve tone row, and then you do everything. It's a, a compendium of techniques that can be used uh, within the language that I was proposing. Both both compositional and technical. It's, yes, uh, and and they're very closely related. I mean, we uh, some of those parts we couldn't really play for a while. Uh, so we learn. We so what when when alter egos when they play these pieces, first of all they were 30, 40 years after the fact. Right. The music had been around for a while. They had been playing other pe- pieces of music by people maybe related to me or similar to me, or, or uh, and so w- they were playing pieces that weren't that strange. When we were playing the pieces, they were very strange indeed. No one could play them. We finally learned to play them. So they started with a, like a twenty or thirty year head start on us. Right. It's an interesting thing for me when, when I was first getting to know music in 12 parts, the only recording that was available was the new one on, on Nonesuch, which is a very clean, very, I mean, it sounds like music that, you know, pe- the people who are playing it know it very well. But then if you, if you get that old recording, the one on Virgin, yeah. it's fabulous because it's, it's really raw and it's, it, it feels like... <laughs> no, let me tell you something. We're, we're here, we're about to hear Einstein tomorrow and then that's coming up. And, and it's a, this is a wonderful... Ensemble, both at the dancing and the performers and the, and the players, um, and uh, we had good performances in '84. But you can hear those recordings; they weren't. There's nothing wrong with them at all. What's happening now is that we we have a younger company, and we're hearing it in a way. Uh, uh, because how is the piece different? Well, in a way, it, it has to do with with the naturalness that the music seems. To the, to the players, to the players, it's not a foreign language. It's a language that they had heard before they could probably play very well. They learned to play as they were becoming musicians. And uh, so that it's, it, there's a familiarity to it for the performers. So there's a fluency. Yeah, so that when you hear it now, I said, oh, when I, now, this, by the way, uh, we were talking about this, this is the first time I've actually seen the piece. Right. At this tour. Yeah, well, this is why I asked, you know, with the photographer, you would have been in the pit, so you had no I, idea that there was I all this dancing. In the pit <laughs> most of the time. Uh, uh, and so I, it was only I think in Ann Arbor uh, in December and in, in January where we were doing some, uh, we were doing some present, you know, we were doing some preview performances. They weren't really premieres; they were preview performances. And and for the first time, Bob had suggested, and I had agreed, and uh, eventually we all listened to Bob, and I agreed that we would not be performers. Now we had all been performers in the original. Bob had a fabulous. Uh, piece at the end, which we call the flashlight dance, which you can see at the end of the piece. And Lucinda not only had her own choreography, but there were the pieces she did for her company. And I was, uh, someone asked me recently, do what I miss playing? And I said, I, I actually don't miss playing, except when we get to the night train. That was the piece that I played by myself so that Michael could take a break. <laughs> so, and, and so I got used to playing the night train. And when we get to the night train, they said, damn it. I should be playing that piece. You could but, always just you could just stay. No, you no, could, no, you no, could no, totally crash the pit. I'm sure no one would kick you out. <laughs> I have been kicked out, but uh, 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 that's another story. We can get to that sometime. But but uh, what what happened was that uh, uh, I, I watched it for the first time, and I saw the whole piece. And I of course I've heard it and seen bits of it, but I actually saw it from the point of view of a spectator, so to speak. And uh, but one of the big things that's happened this time is that we always have people who could come and go when they like, but they don't go that much. Mm. Uh, it used to be, in fact, that uh, in the early days, people would treat the dancers the way they did in the 19th century, 18th century operas, where when the dancers came on, they went out and had dinner. Right. You know, that's why, that's why they had dancers in operas. That's so what I'm doing on Friday. I have reservations. It's, <laughs> it's all set to go. <laughs> people, the, the, this dance company is so gorgeous. That you wouldn't, you would you, you you wait for the, you hear the see the first dance and you can't wait for the second dance. So there's a whole the way that all the notes are the same, the images are the same. Uh, Bob has said that that he hasn't changed it that much, and that's true. Uh, there have been there's more detail in in his uh, in his directing, but that's just the natural growth that he as a director has experienced, and we see that. There are no, uh, you know, world, there are no uh, oceanic shifts. Right. In you haven't perception. added a character. We, not did, we didn't have any great realizations. 
Uh, in fact, we never did have any great. We didn't have any one we personally. We never had any. We, uh, right, I wonder. Should, should we should we look at that? Uh, should we look at the old the old Einstein? Which from which year? So uh, uh, this is probably from ninety three that we. That well, we have I'll on. look at this one. <laughs> this court of common pleas is now in session. supermarket and there were all these aisles and there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of fourth of july blooms on them were red and yellow and blue and i wasn't tempted to buy one but i was reminded of the fact that i had been avoiding the beach i was in this prematurely air-conditioned supermarket and there were all these aisles and there were these bathing caps that you could buy that had these kind of Fourth of July plumes on them. And I wasn't tempted to buy one. But I was reminded of the fact that I had been avoiding the beach. Uh, I will realize that the boy that, at the boy at the beginning, his name is, was, is still Paul Mann. He was eight years old, now he's 36. It was just a little, you know. Just, that's what, that's it's some trivia. Of, that's part of what this is. When you... When the piece lives long enough, so that you're still doing that, that's kind of astonishing too. You know, as composers, we don't, we don't, we don't really write for posterity, do we? I mean, you write. I hope not. We it's like a bad writing, idea. You're writing for this year's repertoire. For you're writing for what you're doing right now. It never, I think, it never occurred to Bob and I that 36, 37 years later we would be still doing this piece, or that not still doing, we didn't do it continuously, but that it would be being done again. I don't think we ever thought of it that way. To us, it was just the work we did in 1975. And, and yet, here we are. <laughs> well, you know, there, there are a lot of things that uh, we don't get right the first time, and mostly our whole lives are like that, you know. <laughs> and, and, and interesting, it's curious, because it's, it's a kind of a luxury and kind of a rarity uh, that a composer... Would live long enough to to hear his early work, and to hear it from the point of view of someone that's forty years older. Well, it must it must have that effect of sort of looking at looking at old photographs or something. Like I look like that, really. It's, it's, it's stranger than that. <laughs> uh, and I, I I truly hope and I pray that you will live to see that, and I think you will. So I, I guess something that is interesting to to talk about is we, we've seen these large scale works now. Um, in which the only text that that is what I would call comprehensible is in is either spoken. So, the, so the, the text that we can understand is spoken text, and the text that's sung is made up of the recitation of numbers, um, solfege syllables, which is do re mi fa sol ti do, Sanskrit. What, what it, it seems like you were sort of very very deliberate. Well, I was uh, yeah. It was it was a deliberate. Uh, uh, I was pushing back the the element of language for a long time, uh, almost. Uh, by the time, this is 84, so I was working Italian. That's not so hard to do. Uh, but the first operas and a lot of things were... were uh, I, I, I was really thinking of the work in terms of image and movement and music. And I came to the text. I finally uh, wrote my way through to the point where I said, okay, I'll do one in English. <laughs> what, was your, what was your first opera in English? Uh, probably it was The Fall of the House of Usher. This, this is this is we're out of the seventies. We're we're you were in the eighties. We're now. in the in, yeah yeah. And uh, and uh, it was a text I liked very much. Uh, uh, Arthur Yorinks wrote the libretto. He was a he was a writer, but he was also a writer of children's books, and he was a master at as of having one image and a sentence, the way children's books are. Right, it makes him a great opera librettist. 
because uh, he could read, he could, he, he, turned, he could turn in a libretto that was 18 pages long. And that would be enough, right? Yeah. It's, I mean, one of the things that's extraordinary about Satyagraha is that the whole, the whole libretto fits on a piece of, a piece of well, legal paper. Uh, yeah, right? that, was a, that was a complicated uh, uh, way of doing it. But what I wanted to do was to, uh, I wanted to use a text that Gandhi knew. Now, no one, I, I, I'm telling you that he knew it because that, historically speaking, that's true. It doesn't really matter that he knew it. But uh, what my, my, my uh, we also presented the text, and even as you go to see at the Met, now, it'll be projected not sometimes on the side and sometimes in so it's on a pile of yeah, paper yeah. or but you can see the words so I wasn't I wasn't uh, rejecting the words at all I just was um, the idea of, of matching the words to the action was something I wasn't interested in at the time. And, and what but about, I became very interested in what about solfege what, what, what was the I mean because as, well, as a young musician I, I, this is how it worked uh, Bob, Bob and I were rehearsing Einstein. We had three rehearsals a day, a morning, afternoon, and evening. So we had a music rehearsal, and then we had a dance rehearsal, then we had a staging rehearsal. And I was the rehearsal pianist for everything. I actually got to know the piece pretty well. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the dancers were also the singers, so the, uh, they were there all day. Which they no longer are. They've, those right. those things have been divorced. And, and that has made a big change in terms of a kind of... But, you know, there's something wonderful about having people who dance and sing. There's, that's not to say that that isn't wonderful in its own way, but uh, we get a, lo- a higher level of... Both. Of professionalism and dancing and singing. It's very different. But uh, so when we were... Uh, uh, when we were, we were uh, rehearsing one morning, and, and I, I had to teach. I, I, taught, I, I taught the piece by rote to the singers. Uh, I, they memorized it. And I had learned how to do that uh, mainly by working with, uh, with Ala Raka and some of the Indian musicians I knew, where I was taught long pieces of music uh, by just learning. It's very simple. You learn two measures, then you learn three measures, and actually four measures, and actually five measures. And you build it up that way. And we were learning. The whole of Einstein was learned that way. And it took a number of months. Uh, uh, one day, uh, uh, and I decided, uh, for the rhythmically complicated ones, I used the numbers. Uh, the numbers 1 through 8 took care of everything, by the way. It's not really about the math- mathematics. It's really about arithmetic. It's, it's not that complicated. But uh, th- there's another side to that, too. The, uh, the solfege, that would be the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. That I used in the more lyrical places, and uh, it was a way for the players, for the singers, to remember what they were supposed to sing. Now, so I was using it as a, I hadn't yet arrived at a, at a decision about what the text would be, what the vocal text would be. We were simply rehearsing. One, Bob, one day, Bob came early, because uh, he didn't have to come to the morning music rehearsal, he would come to the, he would come a little bit later on. He came in one morning and was listening for a while. Well, he often came, actually. And then one day he said, Philip, what are they singing? And I said, oh, they're singing numbers and so forth. He said, and he said, is that the vocal text? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and until that moment, I hadn't decided. And when he asked me the question, I realized that that the question provided the answer. Right. And, and, and so that is how that happened. But it also has the virtue that someone listening to it, if you really get to know the piece well, you'll actually know where you are. Uh, it invites you to have a kind of... Well, as, it, writes, as, it writes its own score while it's being performed, which is what's kind of fun about it. Is that if, you, if you're paying attention, you know exactly... You, you can actually figure out exactly what notes everyone is singing, <laughs> right. exactly where they are on the beat, because they're, they're saying it to you. So yeah. it's, it's essentially, you know, you're sort of Google mapping it in real time. Well, this, 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 in a funny, a funny way, though, the music is very simple. At the same way, the I would say the the procedures of the music are, are very are very radical, uh, and it's that combination of the radical approach to uh, to the simplicity of music uh, that either got people very annoyed with me or very enamored with with the music, one or the other, and and. For a long while, it was mostly 
and people that were annoying. But it gradually shifted, and finally, after a while, and, and I shifted as well. I was uh, expanding my language. Well, I was going to say, it's, I, I can't, I can't imagine that you know, I've known you, for, known you for years, and I know that you know now, when, now when you write an opera, you don't, you don't wait for the last minute to figure out the text. You start with the libretto. And, I, I turned around completely. This I now work with the libretto. And the big turning point, which is in, in me, a language that is comprehensible to people, uh, the, and, where, where I really understood the power of the libretto was when I was began working with the Jean Cocteau operas, uh, which I did three of them in the nineties. I did uh, La Belle Rebette, Beauty and the Beast, and Les Enfants Terribles. Uh, I don't know what the translation would that be. Sometimes said the Terrible Children, but that's Children not, of the Game. I think is the, ter- the, the terrible English translation. And uh, Orphée, which of course is based on the old story Orphée, which is the basis of literally hundreds of operas. Uh, when I began working with... Uh, I, I, I had the idea... Well, it was really about combining techniques of film and techniques of staging and combining them into opera, but that's not really what I... What happened as I was working on it, I began to discover what a, a, a skillful writer Cocteau was. The... Uh, you couldn't want, you couldn't find a better libretto than any of those. I mean, the libretto for the the they were scenarios for films. Actually, I I used them as librettos. I I got permission from the uh, Georges Dami, who at that time was, he had been a companion of Cocteau and is a guy that plays Paul in Les Enfants Terribles, and um, he plays the young boy in Orphée, the one that's. Uh, working the shortwave radio. Right. So, uh, and I met Georges Dami, of course, it was 40 years later, he was in the 60s. He looked exactly the same. I, a little bit older, but he, the same handsome, trim fellow. Uh, and uh, I persuaded him to let me use the, uh, the scenarios as librettos. And I, to this, I don't think he understood at all. I mean, we were speaking in French most of the time. So it wasn't a question of language. He just seemed very puzzled by the whole thing. We were having lunch, and we got through this lunch, and we bought a whole bottle of wine later. He said, oh, well, let's just drink to it. And, uh, and before I knew it, I had the rights. <laughs> and he never did get to see it. Uh, he came to one performance that was going to be in Germany, and his car broke down, so he didn't come to that. And uh, so he never, he never did see it. But I got the rights to do it. And, and what happened was that it was at that point that I understood that uh, I'd heard composers talk about the librettos, people, especially the Italian composers, the Verdi, uh, that, that, the, that without a great libretto, you couldn't have a great opera. That the opera really would be at the, would be at the core. And I had managed for quite a while, actually. <laughs> I'd written maybe a dozen operas and never, and never had a text that anyone knew what anyone was saying. <laughs> so, and so I said, well, I guess that's just an old, old wives' tale. It doesn't really matter, and I'm doing it a different way. But then when I began working with Cocteau, I said, oh, my God, I could not have written, of course, I couldn't have not written those operas without this, those librettos. But the, the skill with which the characters appear, the, the, the denouement, the way... Uh, uh, the, I, I, I immediately began trusting Cocteau... Implicitly, if he did it, then it had to be right. I didn't ever. Th- First of all, he was long gone. Uh, the the estate was in France, and they weren't particularly interested in what I was doing. Uh, uh, at one point, uh, uh, Jeremy asked me, what was I, "Would I make any changes?" And I said, "No, I was going to use it word for word the way it had been written." Uh, then he went. Uh, I went home, and I got about a week later. I got a copy of the libretto in French in, uh, in the mail with a note from him saying, please uh, indicate where you've made your changes. And I just put it back in another envelope and sent it back. <laughs> uh, and I never heard from him again about it. So, but but the, the, I quickly understood that one of the great theater writers was Cocteau, something that people don't seem to know that. They thought it was a dilettante or something like that. It wasn't all the case. He, he, he understood how to tell a story. And... Uh, I immediately, I think the first one I did was Lebel, and I immediately decided to trust everything he did. And, and, I, and the three opera, those three operas became uh, the, uh, the basis on which I began to write uh, with, 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 with words. intelligible words. Let's, let's shift gears for just a second out of, out of words into this idea of these, these collaborative situations. Um, it seems like you've, you've 
you know, you were talking about your work with, with Bob Wilson being so important that it was the two of you and you and Lucinda, that everyone working kind of together. And of late, you've been doing you've been doing work with musicians from traditions other than the Western classical one. Um, I wonder if we should just look at look at Orion for a half second and see that yeah, as an example. All those fellows, those, not just. So there we have uh, Wu Man, who is playing that sort of pipa instrument. So I, I guess my, my question is how, you know, you, you have a very specific way of addressing um, the instrument so that it, it's idiomatic for the instrument, but also feels very much a part of what you were interested in doing musically. Well, uh, first of all, I, uh, whatever the instrument might be, I had to spend some time with it uh, to understand how it was built, what the open strings are uh, on the instrument, what, uh, how it's played and so forth, and whether that would be... Uh, with Mark Atkins, who was a didgeridoo player, Wu Man. Um, uh, Fode Suso plays the Cora. The Cora, yep. Uh, there was a, a percussion ensemble from Brazil. Duarte, uh, um, Ashley McIsaac plays uh, a, a Celtic violin, uh, left-handed, <laughs> with the notes in the original position, so that it's, it's, it's playing backwards. It's, it's, yeah. backwards upside, upside down. And, it's kind of playing backwards and upside down. Uh, um, the first thing I have to do was understand what the instrument is, and then the 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 point was that uh, that uh, uh, the reason I was doing it to begin with was to uh, understand my own language better, and I found that when I when I had to uh, embrace somebody else's language, I had to find a common place that we could work in together, and. Uh, uh, there were all kinds of strange things happening along the way when, when these things happened. When I began to understand how profoundly different the, the training even is. In one way, the training is exactly the same. In other ways, it's not at all the same. I'll give you a good... I, this is a very good example. It won't be a long one, but it's, it's very to the point. I was working with Fode Suso in maybe 1991. He's a chorus player from the Gambia. The chorus is a 16-string, kind of a harp-like instrument. And... Uh, uh, we were writing music for a production of uh, the screens, the screens that, been, right? that Joanne Acolas was doing for the Guthrie, and Joanne asked us to do it. So we were playing, working together, and I had had done a lot of collaboration, and I was work, starting to work with collaborating with musicians, which is actually uh, even uh, more it's, it's more demanding than working with a, someone who's a dancer, where they already they're, you don't have to. You don't have to speak their language. Yeah, they, they're, they're, they take they're care of that, and you don't have to worry about that. And, or whether it might be a singer or whatever it might be. So, we, so the first we sat down, and, and I didn't know where to begin. I said, well, Fode, let's, let's tune the instrument. And he said, okay. And he played a note, which I understood was close enough to an A. And I played the A on the piano. He said, I said, what's the name of that note? He said, that's the first note. I said, okay. <laughs> so uh, I, it took me a while to figure this out, and, I, and then I, and I, and I, and I, he then he played the next note, and it was a B, and I played the B, and he tuned the B, and I said, "What's the name of that note?" He said, "It's, it's the next note." <laughs> and then I got to the C sharp, and I said, "What is that?" He said, "Oh, it's the note after that." And then now this is this is which is the libretto for Einstein. No, as it turns out, yeah. So I've never done this before. I've never seen this before, and I. I had a moment of extreme. It wasn't exactly panic. It felt like the the ground beneath my feet had given way, and I was floating in the air. I had a real intense experience, 
And, and, and you have to understand that when I, and this happened to every musician, when I, the, my first flute lesson, I saw one of my teacher said, well, hold the flute like this, hold this key and that key. He said, blow over here. Now that sound is a B. We call that a B. And this is what it looks like. And he pointed to the... You know. So at that moment, I learned how it looked, how it played, and, and, uh, and how, it sound, how it sounded. So that the name of the note was the note. And here suddenly, the notes had no names. Now, I was... I, <clears throat> I, I think I was truly frightened. <laughs> uh, I didn't... I <clears throat> We actually had to stop for a few minutes. <laughs> you took a break. We took a break. And we got back to work. And uh, in the end, uh, what I began to do with Foday, and that's how, and we still work together. We were still working. These, I did a concert with him last week. Uh, I decided that I wouldn't write down any of the music. Now, I, eventually I had to because he could remember everything because he didn't, he didn't have a, a, a written language. So when he wrote, when he composed something, he simply memorized it automatically. It was right. part, it, of, part of the writing was knowing it. Right. He, he knew it. Uh, uh, I had to go back later and write things down because I could easily forget them. A, a couple months later, I wouldn't remember what we had done. Uh, but uh, during the composition phase, I didn't write anything down. And so I tried, to, I tried to find where would I be if I was playing just that way. And, and I began just working with the sound. And it, so now that encounter... Just it meant that I was starting to think about my music differently. That was the reason I was doing this, whether it was working with Fuman or, or whoever it was. So that, uh, and the stranger the better. Uh, uh, with the, one of the people I love working with was the Dishu player, Mark Atkins. Uh, what, a, what a character he is, but, but what a wonderful player, too. Uh, that, though we had problems where I found that he couldn't hear compounded rhythms, like he couldn't hear three plus four. But he could hear, as long as the four was there, he could hear everything. Right. But he, he couldn't do that. Uh, one, uh, of the, one of the stranger pieces, I don't know even if this thing is recorded, one of the stranger pieces you've written is that piece for Mark and Pipe, pipe Organ? Is, yeah. that, is that released? Yes, it's called It is the so weird. <laughs> it is. And we just finished recording it. Did you? Okay, good. Ten, about okay. ten years later, we got around to recording it. Everyone buy it. It's, it's very bizarre. <laughs> and, 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 and what he did, the way I began working with him is I understood that... Uh, that he had to play off of what I did. So I would write a piece, and I would leave places for him to write in, and I didn't know what I was going to write. And I would write uh, rhythmic themes. I, I would write, because most of it, it's mostly rhythm music that he's doing. And, I, uh, and sure enough, he would begin, he began playing his rhythms against my rhythms. So I, that's how we did that. Uh, but uh, I never was able, I wrote down my part, but I never knew how to write down his part. It's a, it's a funny thing with collaboration, especially when you're when you're dealing with people who who have a totally different notational system. It, it's as you said, it's it's this kind of terrifying moment. But you've also worked a lot with film, and and you were very lucky early, I would say, because a lot of your work in film was with someone with, with Godfrey Reggio. Who, yeah. By the way, we just uh, this week completed the new one. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's, we're now up to five or six of these things. It's but he's I mean, he's someone who who. Um, who sort of cuts to the music, so you, you, you don't have to deal with this, this sort of terrifying... We, 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 we worked together in, the, in, a, in, a, inter, in a really interactive way. Should we, should we hear just 10 seconds of... I, I, I feel like it's cruel to keep on playing these tiny excerpts sure. of such big pieces, but let's, let's get our Katsi on for just a second. <laughs> Thank you. 
I think, you know, Koen Eskazi is kind of the most epic music video ever, right? I mean, it was the, it was the thing that in... Um, you know, in high school, there were uh, you know, Pete, Pete, everyone was like, "Let's just totally get stoned and watch Colin Scottsy." Like that was like the, that was like the thing that I think we've all done. I mean, it was you know, I, um, it's <laughs> don't say you haven't either. I'm well, well, actually, let's just say a second. So we were we were Gaffney and I were presenting that at the Hillsborough Library a couple of weeks ago, and someone said to him afterwards. Mr. Andrew, have you ever gotten stoned and looked at your movies? And he said, I do it all the time. And, yeah. And In fact, he's probably doing it right now. And, and, <laughs> and I said, and then he said, Mr. Coswell, you know, I said, I never do it. But I said, in fact, the interesting thing is, is that how closely we worked together and how unimportant it mattered whether we were high or not, because I wasn't and he was. And it made, and we could work very closely together. The contact high is really what's, is what you're oh, describing. Okay, okay. <laughs> but, uh, uh uh, that, that, but uh, in terms of collaboration, that's of course a very different kind. Working with image, I mean, the, I, I've often said there's image, movement, text, and music. Those are the four: earth, air, fire, and water. I call it that. And uh, uh, the whole range of, of of theater work, whether it's from straight theater to opera and everything in between, including film. In that regard, film is closer to uh, opera than anything else is. Because all four elements are in the film, but they're not, not necessarily in dance, not necessarily in plays. Uh, uh, but uh, the, uh, to, in the end, I've entered the world of collaboration, or I, say, I would say I embraced it uh, from every angle, from all those angles. And in many ways, so for sometimes the same reasons, and, and, but I would get different results. Because basically, I was, uh, I was challenging my own language. Well, I think I, one of the things about Koine Scotsi that, that to me, just I've been looking at it now, it's it it uses in a way a lot of the same instruments that we see in Einstein, right? It uses those farfisa organs. It's, it is the same. Plus a, a, a big brass ensemble, yeah. which is a kind of a decadent addition, right? Yeah, we actually used a, a, a real brass section in the beginning, but we could also put them on another instrument. Now what we do, we play the brass instruments on another keyboard. On synths, and, yeah. So we go out instead of with three keyboards, we go with four or five. But then the next, the next in the Katsi film, Poekatsi, then we get into the world of I mean, because Foda is in that in that score. As yes, well. because uh, Godfrey was doing a film about the Southern Hemisphere, and I, by the way, would go with him on these tours or these shooting these sh- shooting tours, and uh, he was very uh, interested that uh, it encouraged me to use instruments from the places that we were, and, and in fact, that's what I did. So there's a lot of of that kind of music. It, it, this is basically a world music score uh, of Paul Akasi. Uh, and, and, then the th- and then the third one emerged after you know, as this kind of incredibly lush orchestral cello concerto. And there, yes. there's no, I mean, there's no sort of organs at no. all. There's a, the secret little organ at the end, you know, but it's, it's, it's this, it's, you sort of wrote yourself through the, over these collaborations. Not only that, but he had two. He ended up, uh, because uh, the first... Uh, uh, movie was about North America, the Northern Hemisphere. The second opera was Southern Hemisphere, and the third opera he claims that the place of the opera was the computer. About eighty percent of the images are fabricated, and he said because it doesn't have a place in the real world, it has a place in this other world. And when I saw it, I, I found I I, I, I I decided that I couldn't go there uh, if I did a completely electronic score. I th- my intuition was that the film would have been unviewable. You would have fled within minutes of, of the... It was just... It was too... It, it, was, it would have been very alienating. I didn't even try. So I decided that what I needed... That the, the, now, here's an interesting thing. The images now seem much less radical 10 years later than they did in 2000, 2001. Um, uh, by the way, we were finishing the score when 9-11 happened. I remember I was I, we were all together that That's it was right. it was a crazy right. one of one of the first things I I did when I worked for Philip was I, I remember really specifically sequencing the um, the jaw harp in the second sequence of of right. Cuts, and I sat there with this big scary computer and I just went meow, 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 yeah. meow, meow, for like an hour yeah. trying to get it perfect. You know, well, yeah. like, uh, the the uh, um, I decided I needed to have something to, as a counterweight, so instead of trying to do a fit, I tried to do a balance. And I went for a very romantic uh, 
Shell concerto. What could be more romantic than that? No, so that's that's what it is. But uh, uh, now, when we listen, we by the way, we just did the three films: Kanis Kasi Paul Kasi Nako Kasi Nako Kasi, which was pretty much uh, badly received at the time we did it. But it was right after 9/11, and there were a lot of there were a lot of problems everyone was having at that time. We, uh, I'm sure we haven't forgotten it. But it even affected the way we looked at these movies. And now, I was back in Australia doing the three movies 10 years later. Uh, the first night was totally sold out. A big hall, anyway, a couple of thousands. The second night was very well, as you say, it was well sold, which means maybe 1,600, 1,800. The third was only about 1,200 people. Now, Nako Kasi didn't have the reputation of the first two. Besides which, if you had seen the first movie and the second movie, maybe the third night you didn't want to go to the movies. Right. Uh, so that could have been it too. But but the people that stayed, uh, the, and I uh, volunteered to me, they said, you know, we really liked the three nights, and the best one was the last one. And I couldn't believe that I heard that. I never would have heard that uh, 10 years ago. And they they uh, they and I, I said, and Godfrey wasn't there, and I come and said, Godfrey, I want you to know that people are starting to actually look at the movie now. It took 10 years now, but that was also true for Arkaya Scotsy. For a long time, people did get high and looked at it. For a long while, we didn't even know what the film was about anything. Mm. At a certain point, we began to say, oh, the film was actually about technology and environment. That the content of the film is not actually about our experience. But it was about... Now, the new film is much more about how we experience it. But... Uh, well, and what's the score? What's the score like for that? What, what's the what's the instrumentation? It's a, it's a full orchestra, and I don't use the ensemble at all. And I, I, I don't want to tell you what it'll be because if I told you, you will laugh. But if you hear it and I tell you, you won't laugh. So all I'm right. going to wait until you okay. see it. And it, it's, it's it's completed now, uh, in the sense that we're about to record it this uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, it's a it's a, and we're recording it uh, in Linz, Austria. With, with Denison. With Denison, an orchestra that was gr- that grew up with Bruckner and Mahler. Right. So. Well, this is—I mean, this is something that I'm—I'm I'm so interested in, in in what in what you've been up to in the last like five or six years. I, I feel like I, I a couple of days ago, not a couple of days, but maybe a year and a half ago, I had my iPod on shuffle, and something came on. I was like, "What the fuck is this? Shostakovich? What is this weird thing?" I couldn't—I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't place it, and there was this kind of undulating thing, and the strings had mutes on it, and there was like a contrabass clarinet, and then there was this trumpet solo from outer space. And I was like, I can't. I have to know what this is. So I pull over the computer. It's your eighth symphony. Yeah. Has the most surreal second movement. I mean, you've you've really gone yeah. out the other end. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's it's so divine. But it's. I I wonder what you think about sort of. Well, uh, what I think is this is that, uh, and I've told Dennis this also. I said, something happened in the last five years. My brain got we we wired. Yeah, um, you, you you ate the blue pill or something like it. <laughs> It's, a fun, it's the damnedest thing. It just comes from having written music for a long time. At a certain point, I began to hear things I'd never heard before. And I, and I just wrote them down. And, and I didn't feel I had to sound like anybody in particular. Right. Well, it feels, it feels like completely liberated music yeah. in the, in well, the I, sense I, of... I, I felt I didn't have to be Philip Glass anymore. Do that. I mean, that, well, that's what, that's what's so crazy about it is it's like you know if you, when, when you when you go through school and when you're writing you're, there's this constant sense of anxiety that that you know that you have to be true to your style whatever that means and true to yourself whatever that means and not derivative whatever that means or doesn't mean and then and then all of a sudden you you've you've arrived at this place with orchestra music especially with these decadent orchestrations. It's the place of not caring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, it's a wonderful place to have arrived, I should think. And you, I, I, I'm sorry, I won't live long enough to see you. As quick as you are, it'll take a few years to do that. Uh, but it's a wonderful place to be. And uh, uh, because uh, now when I listen to Einstein, I, oh, uh, just uh, yesterday I was looking at a piece from 1977 called Another Look at Harmony's a Vocal Piece. Yep. And I was looking they just with, did the Armory last year. They did yep. the Armory. And, and uh, I was looking at the music with uh, Trevor and Alex, who I work with yep. now. I had to replace you with two people, by the way. There you go. Uh, that, that's always that that shows that it was time to go. Yeah, that's, but it's also the best compliment. It is. But uh, uh, and I was looking at this piece, and I said, "My God, did I really write that?" And and, the, and, the, and we're all looking at, we're all fascinated by it. And I said, 
And I said, this is an, I'm astonished by this piece. And they, and, they, and they said, what do you think? And I said, it seems like it was somebody I knew once. Uh, and I, I, I don't know who he is now. Uh, I, I, grew, I grew out of that so far. But the piece is, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a piece which is very, uh, it's fearless. Uh, what, what, it, what, what the piece is, which for it, just in the, to be totally geeky, is it if you've ever been tortured in music school and you've had to do these things where you, you it, this is a very French way of teaching music, right? Where it's like take this chord and turn it into this chord, and the way you do that is with these really specific rules, and you take this note and bend it down here, move that note, and it's essentially a, a really stylized version of a harmony exercise that and, goes on for that goes on for like an hour, yeah. and it's you know which is. It, and, and for me, it has this visceral thing where I feel like I'm 18 again. And it's like you know, my first week at Juilliard, and I'm learning how to make these augmented six chords. And it, it's this, it's this kind yeah. of melting texture. Well, here's the thing. I'm, I am sure that when I wrote it, I was so fascinated by the problem that it, it never occurred to me that there was anything odd about it. I simply started beginning, and I wrote to the end. I never questioned it. I always accepted it for what it was. I, that's my memory, is I just thought it was just writing a piece of music. I look at it 30, 40 years later, and I say, my God, what? What was I thinking? It's outrageous. It, it's, it is an outrageous piece of music, and uh, and I wrote that when I was in my thirties. So uh, it's it's a it's a nice experience to rediscover it. But uh, I also feel um, there's a distance to it from it now. And it's uh, the music I'm writing now. Uh, Einstein is a very Einstein is a very is um, it's a complete piece in the sense that it it. Uh, I worked with wonderful collaborators with, with Bob and with Lucinda. Before Lucinda, there was Andy Grote, who was also quite quite beautiful too. But uh, uh, Lucinda took over the choreography in a, in a very thorough way. She became a it solo. Def- it definitely belongs to her. It's yeah. different, <laughs> it, and it is that. But uh, I had two extremely gifted people to work with, and uh, and that helped because this is a, it. Truly, is a theater piece. It, it, it comes alive when you have all the parts together. Oh, you can listen to the music, and you can look at the pictures, and maybe you can even do the dance. But when you put it together, it adds up to, it's, it's one, two, three, comes out to five right. or seven it or eight. It emulsifies into this it, huge It becomes math. something different. Yeah. And I was very, very fortunate in that regard. Uh, uh, I, I, I dare say that none of us could have done the piece without the other. Uh, we were, we had, by the time we were into the, the 1984 Incarnation of it, which we saw a little, a little bit of, uh, uh, we had really uh, grown into the piece. At this point, the piece—I uh, uh, think it took that long for us to do it. As I said, the first night we we didn't even know how long it was. We didn't—I don't know what anybody. I don't know what people heard that night. Uh, we eventually learned how to play it. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's some scandalized elderly French people who still tell the story of the oh. the premiere. One of them was Alice Tommy, by the way. Oh. <laughs> it wasn't French. I had dinner with her afterwards, and she wouldn't even look at me. <laughs> uh, uh, it was Bob and some other people, and uh, a guy named Michel Guy, who was the, the Minister of Culture, and we were all there. And, uh, uh, Let's... But, I, but I've enjoyed playing in a hall many, many times since then. So. Yes, well, now we're all, we're all always in Alice's well, We're not all here anymore, either. <laughs> Uh, um, let's let's look for a second at just some more some more recent works, just so we can sort of trace this this funny transformation. I think we have a couple more operas, all of which have happened at BAM miraculously. Maybe. Do we run out of? Do we run out of opera? I don't know. We'll have to write one really quickly. <laughs> no, you. you. <laughs> Ah, here we are. Oh, Children of the Game. The best trans. Okay, let's see that.
in a very, or not very recent, but recent enough, Kepler. So those are all recent orchestral sort of things. It's, yeah. it, it's so interesting to see also that there's a sense of, of sort of rediscovering almost 19th century or 18th century playfulness in orchestration, which must have been a fun thing. Again, after, after working with your, with your ensemble, to rediscover this kind of... Well, it's also... Uh, it's uh, ten symphonies later and pieces of operas later. It, it, uh, Dennis, said, Dennis, the conductor who was associated with him, has been. Was that was the band. back of his head we just saw. He was at BAM for a while, too. Uh, he says that I, I always had a sense of orchestration from the, from the first time. He was one of the commissioned all the symphonies. I, I learned orchestration at, at Julia, but not at, as a comp composition student. I understood that I wasn't getting what I wanted from that, so I, I petitioned the conducting teacher, who was Jean Morel to allow me to audit the classes. He let me audit the classes providing I went to all the orchestra rehearsals and studied the scores. That's where I learned, learned orchestration from him. But I didn't get to write it for, it took 20 years before I was asked to write the symphony. Maybe 30, I didn't write the first symphony until I was in my 50s. What's, so what, what does the next sort of couple of years hold? I mean, as we know, the world of opera is, is sort of works, it's well, glacial. I just finished the, uh, you know, I just finished the, um, movie with Godfrey. It's called Visitors. Uh, there's another uh, opera which is almost uncalled, The Perfect American, which is about the death of Disney. And there's another opera called The Lost with a... Uh, that's actually only missing the last uh, epi the last scene. Uh, uh, that's uh, with Peter Henke, the Austrian writer. But those three pieces, that'll, that'll be done this year. Uh, the next opera coming up will be The Trial. Kafka. Amazing. Chris, Chris Hampton is running it. And, uh, and I'm going out to hear his, uh, his, his did a very interesting thing. He did Appomattox with me, which is an opera about the Civil War. And uh, I got an English writer to do it because I thought an English writer would be less inhibited than an American writer, and it turned out to be true. Uh, uh, when he finished that, he about a year or two later, that was very recently, he asked me if, whether he could do uh, adapt it as a play, and I said, now, I had written the outline and so forth, and so he had to ask me, and I was the publisher anyway. Uh, I actually get a co-authorship credit in this thing, but he's done it for the for the Guthrie. And I saw him recently, and I said, How is, how's the new Appomattox? And I said, well, an amazing thing happened. Because when I had done it, I started with the fall of uh, Richmond, and I got into the, the murder of the three civil rights workers, uh, uh, Shiner and... Uh, but you had the, you had that the actual murderer in, in his wheelchair. Right? Uh, yeah, the, the very last scene is the murder in the wheelchair, describing the describing the murder, uh, uh, and it ended like that. So, so the, 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 I had gone from uh, eighteen sixty four five to uh, right up just to the to my what I remembered growing up, which was the civil rights movement. Uh, 
he went for when I saw him, he said, oh, something very interesting happened. He said, there's a new character in the piece. I said, who? He said, LBJ. I said, oh my God. Did you do that? <laughs> he said, I did. I said, uh, I'm coming out to see it. I said, what would you think about uh, uh, a, re a, a, a new rewriting of the, I want to see if I like it. I'm sure that I will. Uh, because he says he's an amazing character in this. So now we go from, look at it another way. We go from, uh, we go from uh, uh, um, Grant and Lee uh, to LBJ and Martin Luther King. Wow, that's, that's, really, exactly. <laughs> that's really, so I'm going to go see it, uh, in, I'm going to see it at the end of September, uh, uh, beginning of October in, in, in uh, but, uh, so that's in my what I'd like to do. But the very next one is 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 the, is the trial, uh, and uh, uh, there's a, a a project with Earl Morris. Uh, right. We, so, yeah, well, yeah, it is great. It is great, but it's very difficult. I mean, you worked in film now, so you know what, what that can be. And like. I we, I was I worked with you on the on the um, on the Fog of War, which was a crazy project. Wow, Errol Morris is one of those terrifying directors who can read music. Please talk about him, so I don't have to say he's, 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 a, he's, he's genius, but he can read music, which is scary. It's great. It's, great. it's better if they, if they can't. He, he, was, he, was a, he was a cellist, and he was always like, could you just fax me that score? Like, oh, no, you're going to get a crazy comment. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but to, to, I think we're, we're just about out of time, but to end this on a sort of... A sort of um, it's, it's amazing to, to look back at all these things that have happened, not just in, in your career, but these huge transformations and how much of it has been at BAM. The, I think probably the first time I, I saw anything of yours was I, when I took the Bonanza bus from Providence out to New York and saw Einstein in 1993, and I was 12 years old and had, like, the worst shoes. And, I mean, it was a big disaster. <laughs> it's, it's a huge thrill for me to, to be able to be here. And I, I um, would urge you now to, to um, in the spirit of Einstein, sort of roam around and, and pee and get popcorn before you watch this, this um, wonderful film. And so thank you so much for having us, and thanks, thanks to Philip. Thank you very much.